Faith matters. Assalamu alaikum. You are listening to The Voice of Islam, where we bring you Faith Matters, a program devoted to taking questions on a variety of contemporary and religious issues, where you, our listeners, set the agenda by the questions you ask. You can send in your questions at faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And if you have Sky Digital, this program is also available for viewing on Muslim Television Ahmadiyya, channel 787. Alternatively, you can open it up on YouTube. Go to YouTube, put in the words MTA Online 1, Faith Matters, the name of the program, and the question you're after. And if you don't find the answer right there, you know what to do. Email us on The Voice of Islam on Faith Matters at voiceofislam.co.uk. With that, it's my pleasure to welcome back to Faith Matters to regular panelists. Assalamu alaikum, gentlemen. Welcome to Faith Matters once again. Wa alaikum My immediate right, of course, is Dr. Zaid Ahmed Khan Saib, who's president of the Qazar Board, the uh, Board of Jurisprudence here in the UK for the community. And to his right, of course, is Molana Abdul Ghani Jangir Khan Sahib, who's a senior missionary here in the UK, as well as being head of the French desk. Welcome, gentlemen, uh, to Faith Matters. And we're going to go on our travels, as this program always does, to Singapore, first of all. And we go to a question from Sana Ahmed. Assalamu alaikum, and thank you for your question, Sana. Um, uh, our question is saying that recently read this comment in a religious column, which isn't a column produced by the MD Muslim community, as w and was wondering if we could perhaps, from the community's perspective and Islamic perspective, shed some light on it. And it's best perhaps to quote the column directly. Um, and I quote, it's written in a column she read, a basic principle of Islamic Sharia states that when a commandment is revealed, even if the masculine form of the word is used, the female gender is also included in this commandment. If this principle is rejected, then the basic pillars of Islam, such as prayer, fasting, pilgrimage, and alms, do will become null and void women, end of quote. Now that's something she read recently, Jahangir Saab, but basically it's asking about this gender application when the word he is used, for example, that it applies to both male and female. That's very correct, because here God is uh, addressing actually all believers through this one So it's pronoun. addressing mankind per se. Yes, yeah. uh, correct, but of course there are certain verses which are, which are gender specific, mm -hmm. and those which are gender specific will apply only to that gender being discussed. And that's very clear from the context. When it isn't mentioned, then it will become a, a verse addressing both genders. Now, in the plural in particular, we have to remember in many languages, including in Arabic, if there is a group of women to which even one man is added, the, the plural will, will immediately become uh, masculine. And uh, this is to show that there is at least one man there. And that's, that's a, a, a peculiarity, peculiarity excuse me, of the language itself. Um, but in general, this principle is the correct one, so she got that right. It absolutely applies. And of course, Dr. Zayt, <laughs> this doesn't just apply to Islam. Um, if we look at some of the other scriptures, you know, you know, when God addresses the believers or those you know, that he hopes that the, will follow the prophet, uh, addressed as all, all mankind. It isn't all humankind, it's mankind, and it's a general application. And even in common use, uh, until quite recently, I would say, uh, you know, when one gender was used, which was, it was quite, you know, uh, understood that it applied to everyone rather than being gender specific. Absolutely. I, th I think when we look through scripture, <clears throat> uh, religious scripture in particular, we find that uh, mankind as a general is addressed. 
and the Holy Quran also uses the same language as Jahangir Sahib has said that we have to look at what the commandments are and we know that Islam does not deny women the blessings of the commandments that have been said as fasting and salat and hajj and so on that women are included in that there is no discrimination of the sexes in Islam on this particular subject so women should not be excluded in this respect and uh, the Holy Quran even in the opening uh, second chapter of the Holy Quran Surah Al-Baqarah it makes it very clear that Allah Zina Yominuna, those people it, it's a, a matter of mankind those those who believe O oh, mankind so women are included in these commandments and they are not denied the blessings that go with these with these actions as well Jazakumullah I think that very straightforward and clear as ever answer to that and my thanks also to Sana for her question our next question that comes from Birmingham in, in the UK and that's Monim Ahmed Assalamu alaikum Monim thank you for your kind comments about faith matters um, he's recently um, been talking to friends of his other Muslims who aren't of the Amdiya Muslim community and um, one of the questions they've raised with him is this issue of uh, and the Amdiya Muslim community indeed MTA shows this quite regularly that there is a picture of the promised Messiah and um, they've raised with him the issue that pictures shouldn't be allowed um, it shouldn't be something which is encouraged in Islam um, and you know basically there was, uh, there was this old understanding that uh, somehow photographs are associated not just are with paintings and pictorial or artistic impressions of individuals where does he's sort of made various references mm -hmm. in defense um, but he's asking for quite specific references or perhaps uh, direction in, in this respect if possible where either through the words of the promised messiah himself or indeed to give greater basis to his argument that this was something which was permitted in Islam it's not something which should be regarded as not well I think we have to take the argument back to the time of the Holy Prophet because that was a totally different era a totally different time obviously photography was was not uh, in use at that time and not for a long time after that so at that time if there were any depictions of uh, of people they were in in sketches or portrait form and because we know that at the time of the Holy Prophet ﷺ, the area was uh, surrounded by idolaters who used to worship idols and the Kaaba we know was full of idols one for each day and on the walls of the Kaaba also were, were images that people used to pay homage to so in order for Muslims to get away from this form of uh, worship of idol worship it was specific that there should be no idols of course in the house of worship or that images should not be there that people would be then uh, mm -hmm. also worshipping so the essence of uh, that has to be understood from that angle alone however photography is a totally different aspect of depiction because it is a true image of something whereas in, in, in artistry it is said to be of a different nature so we understand it basically from, from that aspect the Holy Prophet also in his house had a curtain on which there were images and he would not permit people to pray with that curtain in front of him so that people would not get the wrong notion that perhaps people were prostrating to the image that was on, on, on that 
However, as the modern age is concerned and the photograph of the promised Messiah in particular is concerned, let's concentrate on that aspect of it. We must emphasize that the promised Messiah himself was not in favor of his photograph being taken and to be, to be um, used publicized, as publicized yeah. and used on walls and so on. But he, he did make one very clear distinction. He said, I have allowed my photograph to be taken so that people may recognize in other parts of the world where I will not be and in other, uh, after the time that I have gone. And people who recognize from countenance the truth of a person, they will be able to see my, my truth from the picture that is taken of me. And that certainly has been the case as history has, has, has shown us. So that was the only reason that he permitted his photograph to be taken so that people would be attracted to Islam and for no other reason. There is no element, no aspect of worshipping the picture of the promised Messiah If we have it in our homes, then it is not definitely for that purpose. But we have it in our homes so that a non-Muslim, a non-believer who may visit our home may see the picture of the promised Messiah and be able to recognize that this is the countenance of a true, true being and, and a prophet of Allah. One other thing that comes to my mind is, is the uniqueness that the, the two messiahs, Jesus son of Mary and the promised Messiah who were the two messiahs, are perhaps the only two prophets who are said to have a clear depiction of their countenance. The promised Messiah through the pictures that have been taken and Jesus son of Mary through the shroud. There is an imprint of the countenance of the Jesus son of Mary on the shroud. So the this uh, the, yeah, the Turing, the, the, the Turing, Turing Shroud, shroud yeah. the shroud in which Jesus, when he was taken down from the cross alive, he was wrapped in that and there is an image of Jesus. So this is something that actually is something that does intrigue us that the two messiahs, only their, their images have been uh, by Allah Almighty uh, are there for us to see and recognize the truth of these two people. Dr. Sub has been very clear, obviously photographs and a artist's impression uh, are two very different things. The other sometimes issue which is raised is, Dr. Sub touched on it, about the photograph of uh, the promised Messiah appearing in homes. But it's also, it, as you would with a loved one, it's not for homage, it's because of your affection that you have towards that individual as you would for your family. Absolutely, and talking of affection, it's very often the case that those who object to pictures being used at all have no objection whatsoever to see the, the hand-drawn pictures of people on, the, the, on their uh, you know, notes in their pockets, whether they're dollar bills or pounds or whatever they're using. They have plenty of those and they never object to them. So it is a little bit uh, hypocritical of them to say that pictures are not allowed. Um, but but uh, there is another succinct reason why uh, the picture of the Prophet was taken and thereafter of his Khulafa as well. And it is that God has guided hundreds if not thousands of people to the truth by showing them in their dream before they knew anything of the Ahmadiyya Jamaat, uh, either the promised Messiah or the first or second, third, fourth or fifth Khalifa. And when they thereafter visited an Ahmadi's house maybe a year later or ten years later, they said, I know that person, I saw that person in my dream and he told me to the, 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 you know, accept my way, this is the truth and I've been working, looking for him like since forever. And so this becomes a means of their guidance. So if the photo hadn't been there in the first place, they might never have known who that person was who visited them in their dreams. Some even report saying that they'd received several visits of uh, either the Prophet himself or one of the Khulafa, 
and who repeatedly guided him in, or her on different issues in his life. And then after so many years, they found out who the person actually was. And then, of course, they become Ahmadi Muslims mm -hmm. there and then. So that's a very in interesting reason why that picture was also taken. But uh, there is also another thing which we have to remember. That it's the basis for this rejection as such. It's, uh, as uh, Dr. Sabat said, that uh, the Holy Prophet Muhammad was not happy when, for example, Hazrat Aisha once put uh, this curtain up with the pictures on, and he had to remove it in case people got the wrong idea. But uh, he also said something which, which re recurs again and again, and I'd, I'd like to bring that up because that's probably in people's minds asking the question. He said, and this is in, for example, in many hadith, but one which I've got here, in the Sahih al-Bukhari, it's Kitab Bad, Bad al-Khalq, in Hadith 3144, Abu Talha who was reporting, he said, the Prophet said, لا تدخل الملائكة بيتاً فيه كلب ولا سورة. So he said, angels do not enter a house where there is a dog or a picture. Now, one, on one occasion in, in Sweden, it was uh, the fourth Khalifa, rahimahullah, explained that people unfortunately take this hadith too literally. He said, he said that, look, angels have nothing to do with animals. Why would they move away from an animal, whether it's a dog or another thing? And he said, actually, the Holy Prophet Muhammad was, was playing on the word kalb, which means dog, and qalb, which means the heart. The house here is the person. As we, we say even in English, you know, my, my body is my temple. Mm -hmm. So it's, the, it's where the Lord resides in the heart, isn't it, in, in every person. So he said, if you have a heart which follows the world and materialism like a dog follows its master, this is what he is meaning, then an angel will not enter that heart if your heart doesn't turn to God more than it turns to other things. Similarly, if your heart has anything else than God, meaning a picture of something else inside it, then an angel will not enter that heart. It will not enter that body, that mind, that soul. It only, and angels will only come where they find God present, you see. So anything which will remove a person from God will, will, will also you know, remove the angels from, from, from itself. So this is what uh, the, the, the Prophet ﷺ meant by this. It's not regarding a dog being there. An angel will come in whether a dog is there or not, if it has to. And if there's a picture there, what does that, go, what does that have to do with any angel at all? Nothing at all. These are physical things. Angels are spiritual beings. They have no relationship to these things. It's what in, what's in the heart that angels are interested in. And so we should be very careful to interpret these things correctly. Gentlemen, as ever, Jazakumullah, and my thanks also to Munim Ahmed uh, for your question. Off to North America we must go for our next question, which is to Canada from Nadia Rasul. Um, She's referring to a particular hadith um, stating that when the promised Messiah appeared, the sheep and the lion will sit together. She doesn't quite comprehend this hadith, Jahangir Saab, but she rightly, I think, is also assuming that the lion and sheep are metaphors rather than literal. We were just talking. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, in terms of, I mean, again, we've talked about this uh, at length in many answers, both from the Holy Quran and Particularly, particularly from the Hadith, that certain symbolism is given to, and certain, you know, things that people could understand in this modern yes. age, and that association is given yes. not because in, lit in literal terms, mm -hmm. but to show the qualities or perhaps explain the nature behind yes. this. This particular Hadith, perhaps you can, we can help uh, Nadia out here a bit. Well, I mean, it's also a biblical usage, isn't it? You know, mm -hmm. lions and lambs sitting together peacefully, or lions or wolves and lambs sitting together. Yes. It means the meek and the mighty that when they accept the promised Messiah whether they're meek or they're mighty, they will stop hurting each other or stop being, being hurt by each other. So whether it's the case of the, 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 the lion hurting the others or the sheep being hurt by others, all this will end. Mm -hmm. People will become as brothers and uh, they will love each other 
and they will stop trying to hurt others even if they have the power to do so. So this is what a Messiah does to people. When a Messiah touches people, then his blessing makes them change and become pious and become God-fearing and become sympathetic to others. And so this is why Messiah has come. I mean, it's to, to, to remove the, all traces of, of violence and all traces of uh, aggression from them and to make them all become meek so the lions will become just as meek as the, as the lambs are. And that's what, that's what it that's means, actually, it? yes. It so ta ta taking it again, I suppose this is one reference that critics of the Amni Muslim community, indeed, of the promised Messiah would say, well, he's appeared. Um, but you still have lions and you still have sheep, yes. and the lions still ravage the sheep. Yes, that's very true. But also, those who might say that, we could return the question to them and say, well, the Holy Prophet Muhammad also came, and uh, he, he didn't manage to convert the whole world, but that's not what prophets come to do. Prophets say, look, here are my teachings. Whoever listens to this now will benefit from them, and whoever turns away from them will not. And so those who have accepted him and who are in this community can bear witness to the fact that to a large degree, we are, ben we are living lives of peace and kindness and sympathy towards each other, you know. We don't find aggression. For example, little little example here. Once when I was in Paris, mm -hmm. I met a, a, a Mauritian Sunni who, was, uh, who told me, you know, we've got this new mosque here now, but it's terrible. And I said, why is it terrible? He said, because people are, people are drawing knives, you know, when this election day, because everybody wants to be the president. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying that's so far removed from, from our mosque. When we have our elections, people, when their names are proposed, they go, please, you know, I don't want to be president. Please don't make me president, you know. Nobody wants to be that. They're not fighting to get these uh, positions. It's, it's a totally different uh, two mosques, people from the same country, but behaving totally differently, you see. Absolutely. So th this is what the, uh, the, uh, the Messiah does. He brings so much difference to people's lives that lions and lambs can sit peacefully together and not eat each other. And just on that final point, Dr. Salva, the Amdiya Muslim community, of course, you know, just to take that point further, there's also no canvassing. You know, we do have elections within the community for all positions from local presidents upwards, indeed local uh, community representatives, be it in the youth association and late. Yet within all of this, as names are nominated, there's no sort of, we're not talking about great political style campaigns here which go on. Absolutely, in the administrative processes of the Jamaat, we see this, as you say, throughout the different organizations, that uh, we do not ask for any office. But when one is given, then we do our best to make sure that we are able to carry out our uh, responsi uh, responsibilities to the best of our abilities. And uh, it is something that you are serving mankind and serving your community as such. But if I just may come back on a practical point to what Jahangir Sahib has also mentioned about the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. And I think that this is something that is now being perceived at large by the world at large. Uh, and we see this particularly when Hazrat Khalifatul Masih, the present head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, in different parts of the world has gone and has gatherings there. That the response and the, uh, and the, and the comments that come after that are really worthy of note because they all talk about the unity and the peace that they see within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, whether it be in England, whether it be in the States, or whether it be in the Far East or in Australia. And we have seen this recently over and over and over again. And even very recently, I mean, I am from Gillingham and we had the mosque opening Indeed. there. And the comments of the people who actually came there, because I'm a local person, I was able to see many of the people after the event, and they could not believe 
the, the spirit of the community and how the community has come together and works together. And they say that this is a model community because this actually is what the world actually is seeking. And they, are, they agree to the fact that this is the true picture of Islam as the Khalifa of the Islam actually points out to the world. So that transformation has certainly taken place. And what Jahangir Sahib said about the era of peace being heralded in by the Messiah, by the promised Messiah alayhi salam 125 years ago, we are now seeing the fruits of that and the transformation of the society throughout the world. And this process obviously, according to the prophecies and promises of Allah the Almighty, will continue at a slow and steady pace. But we certainly do see the transformation of the Messiah and of the wolf and the lamb living together. Jazakumullah, Dr. Sahib, Jahangir Sahib, and my thanks also to Nadia for your question. Um, we're going to go to Chicago, Illinois, for our next question from Aaron Garrell. Um, he again um, thanks all involved uh, with uh, Faith Matters. Thank you, Aaron, for that. Um, he's currently studying at uh, Chicago State University, and he's majoring in psychology, and he was involved with a discussion which highlighted findings by an archaeologist from the University of Tel Aviv, which claims to disprove that the time that the Bible was written because of the domestication of camels. And he goes on to explain various timelines as to when this happened, and this goes on to disprove um, the certain uh, stories which are recounted in the Bible. Equally, then asks that if this can be done, are there instances? And he talks about the story in the Quran where the people of Talmud, who was warned by Prophet Saleh that this took place before the time of Hazrat Ibrahim, and Allah sent them the sign of the she-camel. He says, if this study has gone out to prove or is seeking to disprove findings in the Bible, could it also seek to disprove findings in the Quran as well, Jahangir so? Well, first of all, his uh, facts are not completely correct here. We have to uh, mention the fact that Moses himself, peace be upon him, came around 1400 years before Jesus did. Mm -hmm. And uh, the older prophets like Abraham and says were far be, uh, you know, be, uh, before, before, that. before that. So actually we're talking of uh, thousands of years, 3000 years before Jesus, etc. It's a very, very long time ago. And the oldest reference we have to the people of Thamud, which was the people to whom the Prophet Saleh had been sent salam, in, um, in Arabia, only goes back to 715 BC. And that was from a reference of the Assyrian king Sargon II. <clears throat> and uh, he mentions them as being a people of the eastern uh, and central Arabia, subjugated by the Assyrians. They're also referred to by the Greeks uh, as the, the Tamudai. And this is in, we find that in the writings of Aristo, of Pliny, and uh, of Chios, and also of uh, Ptolemy. And they also mentioned this people. But this is far later, you know, that the, these people, the, this people is actually mentioned. However, the, the fact remains that camels were not being used at the time, for example, of Joseph, peace be upon him. And we know that from, from several, uh, you know, areas of research. One very blatant one is the depictions of domesticated animals that we find on mural paintings within temples and other you know, uh, buildings of the time in e from Egypt. Um, all domesticated animals have been depicted, whether they're dogs or cats or donkeys, horses, cows, you know, uh, all these things, goats, they've been, they've been depicted there. But curiously, camels are absent. Mm -hmm. They're not depicted as being domesticated <coughs> at all. 
And also, uh, there was new evidence being thrown up, even very recently, actually it was at the beginning of this year, that uh, a group of it was Israeli um, archaeologists have put forward evidence to show that even by the time of the kings of Israel, such as uh, David himself, and the elders as well, the patriarchs, camels were not being used as beasts of burden at all. And all the, uh, the uh, carcasses that they have found, the remains that they have found, show that camels were domesticated much later, and they also believe that they were domesticated in Arabia. Now, interestingly, the Holy Quran, now the Bible does, of course, mention the fact that there were camels at the time of the, of the patriarchs. Mm -hmm. This, according to most uh, modern scholars, is now considered anachronistic. Mm -hmm. It was the memory of a, of a people writing of things which they hadn't seen you know, literally, it happened, occurred, you know, thousands of years before them. But because in their present experience there were camels, so they thought there were always camels. Just as they, they, they made a mistake regarding the ruler of Egypt at the time of Joseph, they thought that the rulers of Egypt have always been pharaohs, so he must have been a pharaoh. And so in the Bible we'll find pharaoh speaking to uh, Joseph, but now we know that that's not true. Mm -hmm. he, he was not being ruled by a, an Egyptian king. He was being ruled by a Hyksos king, and the Hyksos were not pharaohs. The pharaohs came later. They're from another, a separate Egyptian line, you see. So the Quran is very clear. In, on both counts, it's very interesting. In the case of Joseph, it says the ruler of Egypt, Al-Malik, the king. But when it speaks of Moses, it says Pharaoh, the pharaoh. So and there's a distinction. There's a distinction. And also in the case of Joseph, it says that his brothers were given what's called in one case the Kail Ba'ir or in the other case it's Himmel Ba'ir which means a, a camel load or which can, which can also mean and the primary meaning actually is a load borne by a beast of burden. Ba'ir means beast of burden. By extension it can also mean a male camel but that's not the, by any means the primary meaning anyway. So it's, it uses very careful language and doesn't say Jamal, for example, as it, which would be the, the, the word for camel. It's not used, mm -hmm. as the Bible does. So where the Bible fails in its uh, account, the Quran passes with flying colors. And it's being confirmed more and more now as uh, you know, research is being thrown up by archaeologists. Authentic nature of the Holy Quran. Uh, gentlemen, in this case, young I think it's a very comprehensive answer there, and I'm sure Dr. Sab will excuse me for not coming to him on this, but I think you know that's been put correctly into context, and also, again, I'm sure Aaron, you'll agree with me, that again, gives greater authentication to the what we read in the Holy Quran. Moving on to our next question, staying in North America, it's from Rahana Naz. Uh, from Canada. Assalamu alaikum Rahana. Thank you for your question. Um, two questions, but I think we can take both together really, Dr. Saab. The first one is about committing sins, and Rahana's asking, will this have an effect on people's achievements um, or failure in their deeds? And linked to that, is there such a thing, if you do bad deeds collectively, um, you'll be wronged as well? Well, you see, accountability is an important aspect of our life that uh Whatever we do here, we will be held accountable, perhaps in this world or perhaps in the world to come. That is uh, in the realm of Allah and for him to decide. At times, he does hold us to account for bad deeds that we may have done in this world and therefore the punishment we do meet is found to be in this world as well. Whereas at, the, at other times, he will delay that punishment. He will let the person, he, he, he will let him go on committing that sin perhaps uh, and hoping that that person will reform himself. Uh, but uh, then a time does come when Allah is severe at punishment. 
and therefore that punishment may uh, may be held uh, he may be held accountable for that in the hereafter and when we will be judged for our good deeds and for our bad deeds so we have to be obviously looking and reforming ourselves to make sure that we are we are living our life within those limitations that Allah has placed upon us and living according to the teachings of Islam in that respect as far as uh, being held accountable for misdeeds that may be done by a group of people uh, one important aspect of our life is that we should keep company with the righteous in, in that sense so that we are not easily misled into a group which carries out bad deeds and we may be part of that problem as well so if we are part of that group and maybe may not have directly been responsible for that but because we were associated with that group and we did not forbid those people from committing those excesses then Allah will hold us to account to that degree as well so Allah is very just at dealing with mankind mankind he will be he will be judged according to the deeds that he has done and he will be rewarded for his good deeds and, and punished for his bad deeds so we have to always bear this this in mind and make sure that we are able to live our life according to the ideals in that respect. Dr. Saab, just before we move on, Jahangir Saab, on this, it's also true to say that the laws mankind makes or man makes, our, our, our law and legal systems, our justice system, reflect those very qualities. So, for example, committing an act as opposed to, you know, contributing or being part of a group or being if you like, coerced into being part of that group. All these are mitigating factors which are taken into account, which again reflect the <coughs> justice that God dispenses. Exactly. God is going to be just. He's going to judge everybody according to his own yardstick and not according to the yardstick he uses for anybody else. And only we know what the, you know, the internal you know, tribulations were going on inside the person's mental state at the time when the, something was committed. Everybody's different. But again, as Dr. Sabat said, to be on the safe side, one should remain, as the Quran says, Kunu sadiqeen, remain with the truthful ones. Don't be with these people who are going to bring you into trouble. The Holy Prophet also said that you will be raised on the day of judgment among those you love best. And also that if you emulate a people, you will be counted among them on the day of judgment. So you have to be very careful, you know, who you choose as your friends uh, and steer clear of, you know, trouble, as they say. You know, because the, the long arm of the law does catch up with you in this world mm. very often, and it will definitely catch up with you in the next world. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah, and my thanks also to Rahan Anas for that question. Our next question comes from Rizwan Ahmed, and he's asking a question about the Hakmeher, which um, is paid at the time of the Nikah, the marriage ceremony in Islam, which is normally determined, and perhaps Dr. Sabin answering you can. Let's give some brief detail as to what the Hakmar is. But his specific question is that Hakmar, the dowry as it's in Islam, is it the same as a bride price where you see in certain cultures, customs that, and it still prevails in certain parts of the world where people almost pay for a particular girl and bride. And perhaps he's asking for some definition around the criteria which is used in determining what that Hakmar should be set at. Well, the first thing I think we need to make sure is that this is an obligatory part of Islamic marriage. So a nikah cannot be pronounced until we have been told that there is a hakmer that has either been settled or will be settled after the nikah. So this forms an integral part of the Muslim marriage of solemnization called the hakmer. It is a gift and that is the best uh, description that one can give of that. It is a nuptial gift which is given to the wife 
and it is for the exclusive use of uh, the bride as well. So it is something that shows perhaps affection of the husband, but it is also given, is said to be an ajar, a reward. And the Holy Quran also describes it as a sadaqa. So it is not a, something that you are paying to buy a bride in that respect, but this is a gift that you are giving and it is something that is given with that in mind. So keeping that in mind, a hakmer is decided perhaps between the two families so that uh, they keeping the uh, financial status of the husband in mind, a hakmer is settled and which is agreed by both, both the parties. The Holy Prophet has discouraged people from uh, settling a hakmer which is very exorbitant and maybe beyond the means of the, of the husband. So in that respect, he has said that you should keep it according to the financial status of the person and you should be within that. So this is uh, what hakmer is. It is either paid uh, immediately after the nikah or it can be deferred by the wife uh, if she agrees to that and paid at a later date. So is there a timeline to that? I mean, that's well, something... Well, there is no timeline to that. And only th there is another aspect that the, that the wife can actually remit that hakmer if, okay. she, if she feels that she wishes not to, uh, not to take this from her husband. But she is the only one who can do that. Yeah, that's right. And the important thing is she, she must do it of her own free will. She must not be influenced or coerced by any, any other party to do so. In fact, the uh, fourth Khalifa, Hazrat Khalifa al-Masih Rabi, the uh, fourth Khalifa of the Promised Messiah used to say, and he used to ask people, have you paid your hakmeh to your wife? Mm -hmm. And people sometimes would you know, say, yes, but uh, uh, I offered, but she actually did not accept it and said, I remit it. He said, no, did you put it on her, on her palm? <laughs> and he said, until and unless you have actually put it in her palm and given it to her, and then if she remits it back to you, That's that is permissible, but not otherwise as such. Is that There's a crucial point of difference as well between the mahar and the bride price, and it is that the mahar goes to the girl, but the bride price goes to her family. So it's like you're buying the girl from the father the or the mother or the parents, and this is it. Unfortunately today, why this question has come is probably because even among Muslims, the mahar goes to the father, and that's very much the case in many Arab lands today. They want the, the mahar because the, you know, they want it to be a high, uh, you know, high rate because, at a high rate because they want the money, and the girl will get nothing. But that's not what the Prophet said. It, was, it will be the, the bride who will get the money. The parents will get nothing from that. Nobody will, actually. It's only her. Well, sometimes also the con contrary to that, if you like, the other side of the coin is that some set it so low in an almost tokenistic gesture that it was a tradition then yes. but doesn't apply now. Absolutely. No. There are some Muslims today who have even put, set a, a token value that it has to have this number in it. I know some Muslims of the Sunnis there who would say, okay, uh, you can either pay 2750 or 12750 or 227.50, but it has to have that 27.50 in it because that's according to their reading of some hadith or something, you know. And they're, so lit they're, they're literalists, obviously. They're so literal in their interpretations. But it becomes a, a, a farce because in whatever country it's going to be, 27.50 is not going to come to very much. You know, even in the highest mm. currency these days, it's not going to be much, is it? So it has to be something that, that the wife can use to her own advantage. She can buy things for herself or for her relatives if she wants to, if she wants to invest even in something she can do it with. So it shouldn't be turned into a farce.
Zakamalan, just as a final point, Dr. Saab, that too often we see in certain cultures around the world, um, and perhaps the Indo-Pakistani culture is probably more reflective of this, that whilst we've talked about the dowry being paid to the girl's family, uh, all too often you see the girl's family almost as part of the agreement within marriage, you know, furnishing the house, providing gifts. Oh, absolutely. Mm, yes. And that concept mm -hmm. of jahiz, I mean, I, I, I bought a literal, as well. yeah, bought the, the literal translation, but it's almost like there, uh, there's a great mm. gifts, mm. bountiful gifts given to, and, and, I, and you'll see it, absolutely. Well. Mm. We need a motorcycle, we need a television, we need this, we need <laughs> that, and otherwise we won't, we won't uh, marry um, your daughter. Absolutely. Mm. You know? But just so to be absolutely crystal clear, I mean, that has no basis, no premise, no history of, in Islam, and it's to be strongly nowhere, yeah, prohibited we, absolutely. and not I mean, just discouraged. Nowhere in the Holy Quran do we find this, or nowhere in Hadith do we find this, Nowhere in the, in the history of early Islam do we find this. So these are cultural aspects of society. And uh, this is uh, something that, as, as you have said rightly, it's more so in the Indo-Pak and perhaps in the Arab world as well, that these demands are made upon the girl's side. We are taking your daughter away from you, meaning that we want some recompense for that. But that is not what Islam says. So, you, you know, the, the, what Islam says is that the bride is leaving her family is leaving her surroundings, is leaving her comfort zone, and you are bringing her into your own house. And therefore, the Hakmir actually is for that very reason, that she should have some freedom, and she should have some money of her own, so that she, she, she has some, uh, something that she can spend her money for herself. So that is the essence of Hakmir, as opposed to this concept of demanding lists from the girl's side that without this, we will not carry out this marriage. You know, there's one thing which I'd like to say here, and it is that this also, you know, puts in, into a proper light the need of the Imam Mahdi at this time, the Prophet Muhammad He's come to free people from all these burdens. Mm -hmm. And we know that in certain cultures, there are, if a man has like four or five daughters and there's this kind of a system going on, and he's thinking, how many things am I going to have to buy to be able to marry off my daughters? It's like the world comes tumbling down upon him on his, onto his shoulders, and he thinks, I'm done for, you know? Whereas in true Islam, he would have been saved from all that. So they should reflect on, on the true Islam presented, as presented by the Prophet ﷺ. If they come to this Islam, they will be saved from so many shackles and so many burdens that you know, their lives will become so much, more, you know, so much easier for them if they do so. Gentlemen, as ever, Zakhmullah, my thanks also to Rizwan Saab uh, for your question. We're going to go to North America for our next question. Muzaffar Ahmed Sahib um, writes to us from Canada. He's been having a discussion with one of his uh, Christian friends, um, and he's got a sort of list of questions uh, which he's been asked, and he's talking about the world we currently live in with the expansion, expansion in communication, um, the whole issue of you know, how we can come to understand ourselves, our structures, um, how economics, politics are playing a role, the role of religion within that. And with this in mind, he's asking a few questions. First question he's asking, Dr. Zayed Saab, is according to Islam and other monotheistic religions, do we all worship the same God? And linked to that, perhaps we can take that one sep separately because he then goes into um, the concept of jihad, and we'll take those questions separately. But his final question is, and should religion and state be separate? So, first of all, this kind of worship within religions, and according to Islam, um, do we all worship the same God? Do we all? Yes, all uh, monotheistic believers follow the one true God, 
and in Islam we call him Allah. In other religions they have other names, names for him. But uh, from uh, the earliest uh, of prophets, from Hazrat Adam, it was uh, Allah the Almighty, the one God, the omnipotent God, the all-powerful God who was being worshipped. And as other prophets have come down, they have been sent by the same creator, by the same God. Uh, and therefore each prophet has taught uh, obedience uh, uh, to that one God. So from their pristine form, all religions were monotheistic and therefore worship the same God as we do. So there is no difference in that respect at that time. Why I raise that, Jazakumullah, for that is linked to it, and I'm sure both of you followed the story, I believe in Malaysia, for example. There was um, edicts being passed um, which were saying that um, as far as the word Allah is concerned, that was only the um, uh, only Muslims should be allowed to use Allah because it's a Muslim uh, term. Yet I think, and rightfully, a lot of Christians have argued the fact that Allah was in use long before Islam came along and others have used Allah as a means to describe the supreme being. Well, this is the subject of you know copyright, that um, Muslim countries in different parts of the world want to have a copyright on some terminology within Islam mm -hmm. and Allah being one of those terminologies. It's a, it's, it's a pity because when they read the Holy Quran and reflect upon the Holy Quran, they'd come to realize that the word Allah had, as you have said, has been used by believers of other faiths as well. And archeological uh, inscriptions have been found which predate Islam, that this is an Arabic word which was used for the one God. And also, you know, when, when, we, when we, read the, we read the Holy Quran, we are told about the letter that uh, Queen Sheba received. And she said, what does it, how does it begin? And it says, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, in the name of Allah. So we have uh, a, a definite view that the word Allah predates Islam, and therefore Muslims should not feel that they are the only ones that are able, should be able to use that. In fact, they should encourage all other believers yes. of, of being, uh, if they believe in the oneness of God, then this is a word that they should be allowed to use and be actually encouraged to use so that it brings us together. The Holy Quran says you should converse with each other on those aspects of religion which are common to you mm -hmm. because this is common ground brings mankind together. Don't talk about your differences, B talk about the commonalities amongst yourselves and this will harbor peace harmony between yourselves and this will be greater for the promotion of peace and uh, Islam in the world as such. Zakumullah, Dr. Sahib. Taking this concept slightly further, Jahangir Sahib, this issue of religion and state, that too often around the world we do see religion and state not being separate streams but intertwined and too often religion uh, is, and the state apparatus is used as a means to almost coerce people in either following a particular religion or actually and denying them their religious freedoms. And that's surely something strongly to be discouraged and indeed... Yes, well, it's discouraged at the very basic level. And it's, um, when we say, La ikraha there was no compulsion in matters of religion, whether by individuals or by groups or by states. It just doesn't exist. And it shouldn't uh, be allowed to take root in any shape or form in any uh, so-called Muslim state. They should be the ones at the forefront of showing how to run a state without interfering in religious affairs of the individual you know, members of the state or, or the um, people living within the, the borders of the country. So this is a, a very you know, hard and fast rule in Islam. 
and there's no sanction for that at all in Islam. And do we have examples, JazakAllah, from the time of, say, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, where, um, you know, for example, we have the Medina Charter, which was yes. widely regarded by many. Unfortunately, I would suggest that it's perhaps not well known beyond the pales of Islam Absolutely. as to how far-reaching it was in terms of establishing perhaps the first Bill of Rights that we knew. It was, because in that, the Holy Prophet Muhammad yeah. sallam, um, stipulated that the Jews of Medina and the believers of Medina, meaning the, the Muslims, would be one ummah, would be one nation, the Jews following their religion, he said, and the Muslims following theirs. But yet there would be one ummah and they would come together whenever Medina was under attack. Because those were the days when you know, they could be attacked at any time. So they made a treaty, he wrote up the treaty, so that everyone would join forces against you know, the enemy to repel the enemy. But he said that that does not mean, therefore, that the Jews will have to now become Muslim. They will follow their own religion, but there's still one Ummah. Mm -hmm. And he used the word Ummah, which usually is, is, is used by Muslims today to mean only the Muslims. Mm -hmm. But he included, he extended it to mean even the Jews because they were living with the Muslims, you know. So the Prophet ﷺ had a very wide view of the notion of, uh, you know, b uh, state belonging and, uh, you know, being a nation. And one other uh, kind of not a very related thing, but just to show how open-minded he was, he said that if somebody speaks Arabic, then they are an Arab. And that's all we need to know. Yes. So they speak our language, they're Arabs. Yeah. We're not going to differentiate between these and those and all that, you know. Automatically you become, you become an Arab. So he was, he was very broad-minded. And this is the way forward, isn't it? Indeed. And then picking up on his last sermon as well, he, when he, again, uh, being of Arab status himself, he again yes. emphasised the fact that no one person or you know particular group of people should have precedence over the other. That we were all equal. Yes, in exactly. Sight, sight he, of God. His teaching in the Quran was that that uh, Allah has created you in tribes and sub-tribes and different colours and different races only so that you can recognise each other. He said, then, and verily, the one who is most noble in Allah's sight is the one who is most God-fearing. That's the, the the whole thing, isn't it? And I've seen, a, for example, a documentary on the, the Jews of the Yemen. There were still some left. They didn't all migrate to Israel. And uh, when, when interviewed, one of their elders actually quoted that verse from the Quran and said that we're all the same, we're all brothers. And he quoted that verse saying that the one who's the most righteous and God-fearing is the one who's most noble. And the interviewer, who was a Muslim, is very happy you know, that he actually did that. But this is the kind of society which the Prophet ﷺ wanted to, wanted to, 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 to bring create. into being, yes. So we're very clear, state and religion, uh, they can live side by side, and, but the notion of nationality, as the Holy Prophet example again demonstrates, doesn't need to be tied specifically to following a particular religion. But let's bring it to here and now, Dr. Zaid Saab. We're living in a world which, as our Muzaffar Saab has put quite aptly, it's more complex, it's more challenging. I think he's been quite restrained in what he's saying. We see conflict, which is sort of ravaging parts of the world, you know, which at the moment creates all kinds of uncertainties, not just for that particular region, but further afield. And unfortunately, there are some within the Muslim community who, who claim to follow the religion of Islam, who claim to be followers of the Holy Prophet of Islam, who see this as creating war and conflict as part of some kind of holy war, jihad, as they call it. And he's asking, what is the Muslim notion of jihad? And is it, more importantly, sanctioned by the Quran. And there is a very different perspective out there that some people genuinely believe, and Syria is a good example of it currently, that there are people fighting there who don't think they're indulging in a civil war, mm -hmm. which the reality is they mm -hmm. are, but actually fighting 
what they call is a holy war or a jihad as they call it. Well, the, the subject of jihad is a, is a terminology that has come into use in the West as, as it is in the East, but it is perhaps a misunderstood uh, concept that is uh, used by Muslims and therefore portrayed to the, to the West as well. Because when we look at the uh, actual root of the word jihad, it is from juhud. It is to strive, to strive in the way of Allah. So we know that from the Holy Quran, there are several verses which, which actually point to the essence of jihad. And we understand that the Holy Prophet ﷺ was told to carry out jihad, but what with? He was told to carry out jihad, not with the sword. He was told to carry out the jihad with the Holy Quran. And this was the greatest of jihads. So the first and foremost jihad is that jihad of the propagation of the message of Islam, the propagation of the message of peace. But at the same time, we know of other verses in the Holy Quran. For instance, there is no compulsion in religion. So if you are propagating the message of Islam to anyone, and then that person has the choice whether to accept or to decline, and there is no comeback on him for that very reason. So although we are, we, are, we are propagating Islam, the choice of accepting or declining is the person's own, and he is under no duress to actually go either way. So from that angle, we have to understand that jihad is striving in the way of Allah, first and foremost in your own self, that you have to reform yourself and you have to be able to be, become known as a Muslim because you do not create disorder in the land because you promote peace. So it is an op opposite, opposite uh, thing that we are talking about. So that is what, what jihad is. To say that it is holy war is, is totally against the concept of Islam, the word Islam itself meaning peace and submission. So when we have that in mind, there is, there is, no, uh, there is no basis for anyone to say that what is happening in Syria is a holy war as such. Islam only permits defensive wars and the Holy Quran and the history of Islam is actually giving us guidance on this that only when Muslims are attacked and someone is attacking you and is, is making you change your faith uh, forcibly then you're able to defend yourself in that respect and make sure that you do protect yourself in that respect. So we the conflicts that we find in the world today are not based upon religion, are not based upon Islam but these are geopolitical wars and maybe ethnic wars that, that are being fought. Unfortunately, by giving it uh, the attaching the label of Islam to them does actually make, make people stand up and listen and try to actually uh, be it's able to... sensationalized. Yes, it's, it's been sensationalized, isn't it? And that is what is done by the media and that is what is done by the wrong actions of the Muslims in those parts of the world and in other parts. Zakamullah, Jahangir Saab, if I could come to you, just taking the point and perhaps looking both from a historical perspective. There are critics of Islam who will say, well, actually picking up on the issue of political wars today, what about the battles that were fought at the time of the Holy Prophet yeah, of Islam? As and, Dr. Zaid Sabah yeah. said, I mean, yeah. whenever weapons are, are allowed to be taken up by Muslims, it's to defend their faith from attack. So they're being attacked because they're Muslims. So as Dr. Saab has very succinctly pointed out, if they're being attacked because of their ethnicity, if they fight back, that will not be termed a, a religious jihad at all. If they're being attacked for political reasons, because people want to grab their land, for example, that will not be a religious jihad at all. The religious jihad is when they're attacked for being Muslim. 
And this is why in the case of the Bosnian conflict, the very first Muslims to declare that to be a jihad were, was the Khalifa of the, uh, of, uh, the Ahmadiyya Jamaat and his, and his Jamaat. They were the ones who clearly said out that this is a jihad because the Bosnians, they're not being killed because of their ethnicity. They have the same ethnicity as the Croatians and the Serbs. But because they are Muslim, they want to destroy Islam in this region. So the, their fight will be a religious jihad. Which was a defensive. Which was a defensive uh, 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 you know, war. But again, Islam is not the only one to say this. Very surprisingly to some, perhaps, Hinduism also says the same thing. We know that a Hindu is one who's supposed to be non-violent. We've, we've learned that from Mahatma Gandhi, have we not? He used to give, you know, speak of the principle of ahimsa, which means non-violence. But he, he didn't tell the whole story, unfortunately. This very verse from which it's taken is ahimsa paramo dharma, which means that non-violence is the paramount religion. Dharma himsa tataivacha. And that means that violence for religion is also the same. This is also so. That's also the paramount religion. So if you have to defend your religion, that is all, and, the vi and by violence, because they are being violent towards your religion, that is also the paramount religion. You have to go for it. That's the paramount thing for you to do at that time. So this is the same principle which is being applied in Islam here. You don't go around bashing people's heads or threatening to, you know, to slit their throats if they don't accept Islam. But what you do do is that if they come after you and slit your throat and bash your head and tell you you can't be Muslim, we're going to destroy you, you have to fight back to preserve your faith and to preserve yourselves from this attack on a religious uh, you know, uh, uh, battlefield. This is something totally different. Now these days, this happens very rarely. I mean, the Bosnian conflict really was something which is, you know, which you find very you know, few and far between. Yes, mm -hmm. it was exceptional. And it doesn't apply in, in Syria as far as we can tell. And this is why the Prophet ﷺ said that this is not the time for religious battles. Now Islam is being attacked by the pen. It's through the media, it's through writings that Islam is being attacked. So we will, re we will reply, we will retort in the same vein using the pen. And this is what he did. So, but every so often, whenever this type of jihad does appear, then whoever is being attacked in that way has the right, according to the Holy Quran, to actually fight back. And this can be termed a religious jihad. But not all these things that you see on the television, they, these of course are not, are not uh, of course, uh, included in that definition. But let's put it in the context of the Amdiya Muslim community. The founder of the Amdiya Muslim community, indeed, this was the time, one of the signs which was quoted of the coming of the promise that wars would be, religious wars would be at an end. And his philosophy, and Zhang himself has already alluded to it, was that no longer will there, there is no jihad of the sword. There never was. These, these are misconceptions that Islam was spread. So let's put that to one side. But also that if you are going to defend Islam, you're going to defend your beliefs, you do it through the jihad of the pen, the writings which he demonstrated through his lifetime and the, his successors continue to do so. And it's a question which is asked of many people within the Amdiya Muslim community that you go through this kind of severe persecution where beliefs are being challenged. You're being told what you can do, can't do, what you can believe, what you can't believe, what you should be doing, and indeed lives are lost. Yet the response from the Amdiya Muslim community is not one of taking up arms. It's not even one of protesting in the streets and placards. It's one of which people are often amazed with is prayer towards God not just for themselves, but for the aggressor as well, to say, may God guide them. Absolutely. This is what the Promised Messiah, Alayhi himself, during his lifetime as well, 
he also encountered these difficulties. But as he has said that the coming of the Messiah would be, he would end all religious wars. And therefore he was the prime case in question. And he showed that the battle that we are fighting now is the battle of the pen. And this is how we will win the hearts of people. It is not by force that we will win the hearts of people. We will win the hearts of people by our arguments and by showing the true nature and the true picture of Islam out there. Yes, we are persecuted throughout the world, but we are at the moment going through a period in which we are defending ourselves. And as the Holy Quran has put it, that this is the jihad kabira is defending with the Holy Quran. So we are living according to the teachings of the Holy Quran as far as jihad is concerned, that this is the greater jihad at the present time. And this is the jihad that we continue to do with, our, with the writings of the Promised Messiah and with the guidance of the successors, the Khulafa of the Promised Messiah that they are, they are also fighting this battle and fighting it with reasoning and with the battle of the pen. The present Khalifa, Hazrat Khalifa al-Masih the fifth, has actually been discussing this in the last few sermons, that it is the reformation of oneself that is the greater jihad as you alluded to. And until and unless we are able to really justify this thing that yes, we are true Ahmadis and we, we, we do follow Islam in its pristine form, that is the best defense we have at the moment. And that is our struggle and that is how it will continue until we are uh, told otherwise. And with that, we come to the end of today's program. I would like to thank our panelists and say Jazakumullah to them for their very detailed and scholarly answers on an array of questions on a variety of different issues. And if you haven't found the answer to your question, you know what to do. Email us on faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk.